today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Cash and Carry Kitchens. At the heart of Irish homes for over 40 years. Cashandcarrykitchens.ie Email todaycb at rte.ie Dr. David Nabarro, the former Special Envoy on COVID at the World Health Organisation and founder and strategic director of the 4SD Foundation. Thank you very much for being here in person. It's great to be seeing you live. Absolutely, because we had so many conversations uh, about social distancing yeah. and masks and, and all of that. And we're going to come back to that. But I want to find out a little bit about you as you're here yeah. in person. Your own decision to become a medic, that followed on because your father was was a doctor. Is that yes, right? It was very much in the family. I mean, in, in a way, I suppose it was almost predestined. But my approach to medicine was different from my father. He was a a specialist doctor in London and fairly quickly after I qualified, I found myself going international. I was working in Iraq and then in Nepal and East Africa and so on. And so I became an international medic Mm. and then I shifted from that. And did he get to see you taking that path? Well, it was at the beginning, he was a bit nervous and uh, we had some tricky moments. (laughs) He then did manage to see me before he passed on. And and I think he, he came... A, a little bit to peace with my slightly different pathway from his. You mentioned uh, Iraq. You were there in 2003 uh, yeah. when the UN headquarters was, was bombed. You were in that building at that yes. time. We'd just been doing some work with the various authorities in Iraq about reconstructing health services. Most amazing uh, session. And we went across town to meet a, a guy who I knew, Sergio Vero de Mello, who was the special representative of the Secretary General. We'd met earlier that morning and I'd arranged that I'd go over and see him. It was about 25 past four and we were waiting to go and see him and up in his room and there was a terrible bang and the whole place shook and the ceiling fell down and various other things. Uh, And uh, unfortunately, he and people with him, including a close friend of mine called Nadia Yunus, perished in that bomb attack at half past Mm -hmm. four uh, in that very, very uh, difficult time in uh, 2003. A terrifying, a, a terrifying experience, I can yeah. imagine. Yeah, it was. Um, I want to say that the, the thing that most struck me then was that things just wouldn't be the same. It was a, a targeted attack on a UN officer uh, and the level of death and suffering over uh, uh, 100 people injured, 21 people dead, was the worst that, that the UN had experienced. And I think after that, things really have changed. Security stepped up and much more attention to looking out for these kinds of threats. Life Mm. changed that day. Mm. How do your family feel about you being in those types of situations? Is it something that they're very used to now or was it difficult in the beginning? I think there have been moments when my family have worried about the kind of situations I get into and certainly... After that Baghdad moment, it was a, a tricky time and, and we had to really renegotiate how I was living and working. But quite honestly, if you're doing international public health work, you do have to be prepared to take some risks. And mm-hmm. the key thing is to try to minimise those risks so that you're not endangering yourself or others you're travelling with. So I I imagine you work a little bit like the emergency services. When the tsunami happened, for example, that's where you go. That's the job. Yes, indeed. 
The most important thing in any of these crises is to get a good assessment at the beginning. So you do have to get in early if you can. But at the same time, getting in early can be tricky because infrastructure tends to be damaged. So you're right that in things like the tsunami and other big moments that I've been involved in, that finding the right balance between rushing in and perhaps putting yourself in danger and holding back too long and not providing a decent service is something we all have to balance. Mm -hmm. And setting up systems and finding out, you know, in a situation like the tsunami, and I I was lucky enough to visit uh, the area a year after that happened. And I was in Sri Lanka and, and there was a lot of work ongoing, but I can imagine going in there directly after that happened. And how do you put the system together to help the people that you need to help? One of the best things about current international responses to crises is that there are protocols that have been worked through. And most important is to make sure that there's security in place, logistics in place, and then the necessary personnel to do the early assessments. I'm pretty satisfied with the way in which these these systems have evolved. But it's taken a lot of hard work by a lot of people, including Irish people, to get that Mm -hmm. right. I was reading last night all about your son. Oh. And what uh, you went through there, and I'm I'm delighted to see now that he is living a well and and full life. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what happened and and the road for him since then? So, in 2007, my son was s- uh, snowboarding in Bulgaria, actually just outside Sofia, and he was doing uh, tricks. He was very very good at at, at doing tricks like somersaults and so on. But he hit a patch of ice in one of his runs and got the speed wrong and tried to pull out of a somersault and instead landed on his head. And uh, he actually did uh, stop breathing on the side of the mountain and it was the Bulgarian army surfboard team that were responsible for bringing him round. He had broken his neck at level C3. People who know about necks realise that cervical vertebrae, the C1s, right up the top and fairly early it became clear he couldn't move either his arms or his legs. This mm-hmm. is a man of 21 at the time who was really very badly damaged. But what I have noticed uh, over the years since then is that determination and focus have led him to be able to not only have a job but to perform really well on developing new computer systems with a foundation he's employed by Intel and also uh, to have a family uh, the, the the person he was visiting became his wife Ellen and they've got two children and I've watched him just become a, a, a very together living person sometimes I forget that he's disabled but he cannot move his arms or his legs and he has to move around in a wheelchair that he controls with his head he's just come back from a visit to see his brother in Pattaya in southern Thailand and I am constantly impressed by his strength and fortitude even though I too from time to time find myself just feeling very sad for him because it's quite a struggle. Mm -hmm. Where were you when the accident happened? I was working in New York at the time. I had my role with the United Nations. I remember actually that day I was taking my children to Bronx Zoo and uh, uh, we were in the zoo and I got this phone call and I then moved very quickly across to Europe. And My mind goes straight to that 
journey on the plane that you yeah. must have had, um, not in contact with anybody and, and how that was for you, David, uh, very difficult, I can imagine. Most of it, though, I must say that I've, I have an ability, I think it may have come because of doing working in crises quite a lot, to be able to put things into a sort of cold storage and to protect them from uh, the despair, at least when they happen. But one of the things that I noticed was that the younger children who I was with at Bronx Zoo were very quick. They said, will he be in a wheelchair? I said, probably. And they said, but he'll still be able to work and do other things. And I said, yes. And it was their ability to see the positive that really stuck Mm -hmm. with me after that. And you also learned a lot of lessons about how we as a society deal with, with disability. When I went to Dubai recently to a climate meeting, uh, I, I noticed that they refer to disabled people as people of determination. And more and more, I think that we need to understand that folk with disability are not unable to do stuff and not to be considered as second class people, but to see, just to be seen as people with different abilities that are expressed in different ways. And I've tried as best I can to understand that. Obviously, I have the same prejudices as everybody else, but that's what we need to remember. Disabled people are not people who are contributing less to society. They're not people who have different feelings. They have feelings like ours, ambitions like ours, and often can be given a lot more opportunity if we just take that extra bit of trouble to help. Mm, well, he does sound like an unstoppable force, though. He's I mean, totally, <laughs> totally force of nature. He lives a very full life. Yeah. He goes to raves and he, he doesn't <laughs> stay in an enclosure at the back. He goes right into the middle of the mosh pit if he possibly can. And I sometimes get super scared, but he's there dancing away. Good for him. Good for yeah. him. That's what we like to hear. You mentioned um, security and how things changed after that bomb that you yeah. experienced in Iraq. And I, I, it brings me really to talking to you about what's happening in the Middle East at yes. the moment. Um, there is talk of a ceasefire in Gaza. Mike Ryan from the World Health Organization, Irishman, of course, has described as the best medicine for children, that uh, ceasefire. How would you define the conflict and the response to it? First of all, thank you for mentioning Mike Ryan. We we both know that I've done such a lot of work with the World Health Organization. He is an absolute inspiration to me. And I've been very impressed by the way in which Mike and his boss, Ted Ross, who runs the World Health Organization, have been steadfast. War is between combatants. People need to be protected during war. However serious it is, however much there may be human shields being used, you must protect people. And I've been really pleased that the World Health Organization and other parts of the United Nations, without taking sides, and this really matters because there have been atrocities on all sides in that particular conflict, but they just make the point that you have to wage war without harming civilians. And Mm. although it's difficult, that's what's got to happen. So that's my position on this, along with the World Health Organization team. It's not easy to express in public. People don't quite get what you're saying. But my position is civilians need to be protected in war, however complex the war situation is. Mm -hmm. It's hard to see how that's going to happen, given how complex it is. And we hear about the threat of famine, the World Food Programme saying that that there are half a million people at risk now of starvation. Super real. And, you know, that's another point that I want to stress, is that 
however bad the initial atrocities, we have to find ways to enable the people to get the food, the water and the health care that they require to live. These are people like you and me inside Gaza at this time. And, and I just want to say that doesn't just apply in that particular war. There are other wars going on mm-hmm. at the moment of course. where people are denied access to what they need to live. And as a public health doctor, it's my view that peace is the ultimate and correct medicine. And you cannot get development and well-being without peace. Well, coming back to the complexity of it, like Israel's claim that there are bunkers beneath the Al-Shifa hospital that they've been used as a command and control centre for Hamas. We hear the Israeli ambassador to Ireland, Dana Elric, and others say that the war can end overnight if we have the release of the hostages and the surrender of Hamas. That's what they say is the answer. So I'm not going to comment on the... Uh, all those issues because they're outside my competence. But I would say that it does distress me to hear of health facilities being used as cover for fighting. That's when life gets really tricky. And I do believe that there has to be much more attention to codes of conduct about the need for health facilities not to be caught up in warfare. We've seen it again and again that as soon as that happens, there is suffering often on a massive scale. Mm -hmm. And very complicated and difficult then for public health actors to get in and do the work that they need to do. And that's really all we stand for. In our discussions during COVID and now, uh, I can say to you straight that my motivation on whatever I do is for people to live and have decent lives. There's no other uh, kind of intention Mm -hmm. underway. And I hope that the position of public health people in war situations will be understood and widely recognised as something that's necessary to help establish the kind of boundaries of what's acceptable in war. You should not be harming people who are somehow not competents in the mm-hmm. battles. Well, let's come back to where we started with our yeah. conversations, David, more than uh, two years ago now, more than that, back in 2020 with uh, COVID. Did you ever expect to live through a pandemic, the likes of which we saw then? We were preparing for pandemics, actually, in 2005. We were dealing with a, a bird flu and were worried that it was going to affect the human population. And some of the scenarios that we had did envisage a disease that would cause widespread suffering. But I did not ever expect that I would be encountering something quite like this. First of all, the rapidity of spread. Secondly, the fact that we didn't really understand what was going on. And thirdly, most importantly, also that governments found it super hard to work together on finding a collective response. And perhaps that, to me, has been the most disturbing feature of it. And I hope that one of the lessons of it is that unless we work better together, we won't be able to deal with these kinds of threats Mm -hmm. in future. So the lockdowns that we had here, you know, They were very strict at times. People will remember, might not want to remember, but but we all do if we try. The lockdowns, do you believe, are they the way to go in the future if we face that type of situation again? Well, I've worked on a few of these outbreaks, particularly Ebola in West Africa in 2014, 2015. And the thing I've learned the most is that it's not enough just to stop everybody moving through a lockdown. What you have to be able to put in place is ways to identify people who are diseased and get them isolated and treated and then try to stop the chains of transmission. That's the basics of infectious disease control. 
we were caught a bit unawares by the speed with which COVID spread. But I believe that it was the attention to that testing, tracing, isolating and all the other basics that we had to put in place that needed to be prioritised over lockdowns. Lockdowns you could do, but briefly whilst you redeveloped your plans for letting society continue functioning in the midst mm-hmm. of COVID. Because people get very frustrated and we, and we saw that over the time of, of COVID with those types of restrictions. So you need to restrict, but at the same time restrict as little as possible because we predicted that there would be mental ill health issues, but also that there would be real challenges for poorer people through total lockdown. So Mm -hmm. lockdown temporary is the rule. And I I mean, I believe that we learnt a lot through that. And by and large, most of the countries, including this one, did everything possible not to have lockdowns for too long. Now, inequalities, and you've touched on them there, you know, how how these, when these situations occur, poorer people are often affected in a more serious way, in a way that's more difficult for them. Um, And that's something that you concern, that concerns you, health inequalities. We saw richer nations hoarding vaccines at the time when they became available. Um, How do you stop that? We had a brilliant system called COVAX that was set up at the request of the rich nations in 2020 in order to get COVID vaccines accessible to all people everywhere. But when it came to the crunch at the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, it seemed to be necessary for leaders of a number of wealthy nations to have more vaccines in stock than they might actually need. We don't quite understand why that happened. It led to a breakdown in the sense of of fairness on vaccine distribution. It really dented the trust of people in poorer nations that actually they were treated as equal citizens by people in wealthier nations. And I don't think we're ever going to fully recover from it unless we look again at the way in which the world deals with these kinds of challenges. Quite simply, we have to be able as humanity to recognise that life has the same value wherever you live. And if you set up schemes to try to confirm that, don't break them when Mm. the crunch comes. And how damaging was it that that happened? Well, I think it was very damaging. Many people that I met and were living and working in poorer countries and, for example, needed to travel, but they couldn't get access to the messenger RNA, mRNA vaccines that were needed if they were to travel in other parts of the world. They felt that they were treated as second or third class citizens and recovering from that takes time. So, Mm -hmm. yes, I think we've dented trust, global trust over that one. And it may have contributed to some of the other trust breakdowns that we've seen more recently. Well, we hear all these warnings, you know, about getting ready for the next one. Yeah. Do we and know we, Do we know what's coming or what might be coming? We have no idea what's going to come. And those of us who spend our time trying to predict which particular new bug is going to come along and cause trouble, we just end up doing lots of fantasy work. What I want to say is that just... Don't forget, pandemics do not respect national boundaries. So you have to have joint working between countries. That means respecting the 
international mechanism that's been set up, the World Health Organization. It's a wonderful organization, 7,000 staff working incredibly hard and try super hard not to break the world up mm. into little compartments and say, we'll deal with this, but not that. That's where things go wrong. Now, this foundation you've set up, it's the 4SD Foundation. Yeah. Uh, it's in Geneva. You're the strategic director. You're here in Ireland to speak to the Institute of International and European Affairs about sustainable innovation in medicine. And you'll be touching on some of the things that we have discussed here today, developments in, in the coming years. So that audience, I, I hope, will be in for a very interesting discussion but we're delighted that you took the time to come and see us here today. And it's lovely, as I said, to see you in in person after all of those conversations we had over the COVID years, David. Thank you very much indeed. And today it will be about health, but it'll also be about food and food systems and food getting, uh, making sure that the, the food systems work well. There will be a bit of a focus also on the current challenges that have been faced in many parts of the world, trying to make sure that people have the food they need at the price they can afford, but at the same time, farmers get a decent uh, standard of living and that we don't run out of food because of climate change. Hugely, There's a lot of challenges to work Hugely through. topical. Dr. David Nabarro, thank, thank you very much. Text 51551. Today with Claire Byrne on RTE Radio 1.